Escape from Plan A. Hey everyone, welcome to Escape from Plan A. Um, I'm Diana, I'll be your host today, and I'm joined by Teen. Hey. Jess. Hey. And Casey, who is a returning guest, uh, last episode she was on was on the um, Harvard episode. So definitely check us out on our archives. Hi, everyone. Uh, Casey, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit for everybody who maybe is newer to the pod? Sure. Um, I would say, so I'm Casey. I would say I've been a longtime listener. It's been a year now of Plan A. Um, huge fan and I am an attorney out here in San Francisco awesome thanks so much for saying that like um, that means a lot Um, okay so today we are gonna talk about the Zhang murder and uh, conviction of the killer um, and just kind of like racism in criminal justice in general Um, basically uh, does anybody want to talk about the case or talk about what happened? Oh, God. Who, who's going to take the facts? It's just ter- terrible facts. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> okay. Take so, one for the team. You're, you're yeah. a monster. I mean, this, this, this case, it, I, it, it got me in a very personal uh, way. Um, so her name is... Uh, Wang Yingying. I don't. I, I'm probably not doing justice to her name. Uh, how do you actually pronounce that? Zhang Yingying, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so she's a she's a foreign student from from China, uh, who was studying in uh, in the United States, and two two years ago she had the misfortune of running late to to go see an apartment she wanted she needed to rent. Um, she got into a stranger's car and was raped, uh, beaten, stabbed, murdered, and then decapitated. That's, those, are, those are the rough outlines of the case. Uh, and the, the trial for her killer recently concluded. Uh, I don't even want to say his name. Just, this, is, this is such an awful case. We'll just call him um, fuckface. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so fuckface was tried uh his trial recently ended um he was he was he was pronounced guilty um uh, of course um but the uh, but then uh, some i'm still not uh, i'm not sure how to process his sentencing he was sentenced to life without parole uh, i'm hoping the two attorneys uh on this pod uh teen and Cass, could maybe talk through some of the intricacies of what that actually means um, going forward for this guy, um, but yeah. uh, it was the death penalty. He was not given the death penalty, which, uh, as much as I have a problem with uh, the death penalty as a concept, um, it's the unf- the possibility there was a misapplication of justice um, in allowing this particular man to go uh, to escape the death penalty while others have been convicted under it. Um, I think that that some of that needs to be teased out as well. Yeah. Can I just read this um, 
uh, AP uh, Associated Press bulletin about the sentencing. So he didn't get the death penalty because the jury couldn't um, couldn't agree on a sentence. And like this person, like the judge basically denounced him, you know, like because he was totally unrepentant the whole time. And like he after, you know, the sentencing, he didn't make a statement or anything to the family. He was just like stone cold, just like looking straight ahead the whole time. And the only time he made an expression at all was when he was sentenced to um, not get the death penalty. Then he smiled at his mom. He fucking smiled and hugged people and was like so happy. And that's just to me, that's like the most disturbing fucked up thing of all is that like he just did not give a shit about what he did. Like he basically just did what he fucking wanted and didn't consider her a person. I mean, he's, yeah. a, he's a complete psychopath. Just to wrap up the details of the case, uh, her remains have not been found. He refused to divulge the location of her remains. And it looks like that was part, like he was using that as leverage in the sentencing. Uh, you know, telling, you know, maybe revealing the location of her remains or part of her remains. Uh, but uh, but it, uh, in the end, he did not divulge the location. Right, so I wanted to go back. I was actually following this case when um, it was first in the news and they hadn't, I mean, she, they they didn't know whether or not she was dead or just missing. This was, I think, a year ago. And I think what was kind of creepy about the case was they had like a, I forget if it was like a press conference or what, and a, a bunch of people came out and then um, they had pictures in the media and he was actually there. So, you know, he had done this to her and then he actually showed up. Um, at the press conference where people were... That's right, right. yeah. Wow. He showed up to the rallies. The rally, right, yeah. it was really spooky. Um, and then I I didn't follow it after that to, to find out like how they actually concluded that he did all these things. Like, was it a confession by him? It was even creepier than that. Um, he, had, he had a girlfriend, and he thought it appropriate to tell her about the murder and how proud he was of it and... You know, saying stuff like um, he finally was able to do what he's always wanted to do. And she was obviously creeped the fuck out and contacted the uh, police who contact who got the FBI involved. And they said, look, uh, we want we want you to wear a wire and we want you to record everything he tells you. But don't, you know, encourage him to talk about it. And she and she did. She she was able to, uh, <clears throat> you know, bury her horror and have him you know, repeatedly divulge information about, you know, implicating himself in the murder. I mean, he could not be any more slam dunk a case. I mean, he, he was bragging about it. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah. Holy shit. Okay, I gotta ask, was his, was his girlfriend Asian? No, she wasn't. No. I don't know what she was, but she was not Asian. I think she might have been white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, her, her, her name sounded white. Um, so barring some other circumstance, I think it's safe to just say um, she was white. I, I think there are indications that it may not have been. I mean, I don't know. Th- this may be why we're talking about it. But I think he had tried to lure other women into his car. He did. Um, yeah. There was a report of at, at least one other woman that same day. Um, 
that he tried to, who testified, I believe, uh, and said, uh, or at least gave a, gave a report to the police, which was then used in the trial, mm-hmm. saying he mm-hmm. tried to pose, you know, the same shtick he pulled on Zhang. Um, and, but she just got creeped out and refused to get in the car. And then uh, the next victim after that was her. And I don't believe that first woman was Asian either, uh, if I recall correctly. Because I think I had been scanning for that fact, right? I was like, is this someone who's targeting mm-hmm. Asian people? But see, that... that um, I don't know if should we segue into the racial discussion here. Um, I, I kind of felt... I mean, I still have not sorted out my feelings on this, but the thing that bothers me about me about this is I, I don't know to what extent that this is a result of at least in part maybe just not enough like it's it's hard for me to articulate this without coming across as if I'm um, somehow saying that she could have prevented this but what I heard was that during the trial it came out that he had used he had said that he was an undercover police officer to her to, to Zhang and that, that, that's why she was trusting enough to get into the car. Uh, whether, I, whether that's true or not, I have no idea because it's coming out of this psychopath's mouth. But I do wonder, like, does, do these guys target Asian international students because there's an element of, like, white authority that kind of makes them more susceptible to white victimization i just don't know i mean like i just i kept wondering why did she how did he get her into the car you know and when it came out that he had just gone around saying he was a police officer i'm like is that is that part of coming to america like as an international student is a sense that white people have authority here in this country is that is that what's going on i don't know i don't know why i thought that but i mean her her backstory is she's a She's the child of working class parents, uh, working class family in China. Uh, she's obviously very bright, uh, did well in school, and won a prestigious acceptance to a uh, to a graduate, pro- a really highly regarded graduate program here in the United States. Um, I don't want to read too much into the psychology of that, but I know that if that were me, I'd certainly be inclined to think positively of this uh, of this place that's taking me in. Right. And granting me, like, giving me the chance to get an education like that. Um, So I I, it's just it's just the confluence of so much bullshit that's going that's going on. And honestly, it hit me so personally, uh, because I remember a few years ago, like, um, uh, like, I remember a situation. I can't I don't remember the exact circumstance, but a guy did like call out of his car telling me to get in. Right. Jeez, and really? I couldn't help but, yeah, I, I like I don't think it's I God who knows right, but um, but it's just you know, like it just I just shrugged it off as like everyday you know like harassment, right? Just some BS that people do. Um, uh, he's like you know baby get in get in my car you know like you look like you're tired you know I'll take you where you want to go, um, and I'm just like like no, um, but it just it's hard to. It, so it's hard to experience that and then see this in the papers, right? Like, it's all these things that seem so benign at first, and it's just that it, it... And then every once in a while, it's the most horrible thing you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I... 
Yeah, I I had nightmares about this case because it was so hard to not uh, like put yeah. put myself in her place. I mean, that's that's the. Can you imagine a worse way to die? That it's horrifying. Yeah, and you're just all alone I, in this country. You're like you literally have literally no away. ability no to. Yeah. to there's no one. There's no one to look out for you. There's no way you can defend or advocate for you. You're a stranger in a strange land. You're completely at this person's mercy. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, for me, like <laughs> a teen, um, I'm not sure if it's like a hundred percent like white authority, but I just know that like thinking about my own family and how they are like when they first came here, like. Like, when you're an immigrant, you just don't know, you know? You don't know what, how people are supposed to be, right? Like, that other girl, she seems like she's non-Asian, not an immigrant, and she's just like, oh, there's, like, these context clues that make me feel really skeeved out, and I'm going to leave the situation. But when you're not socialized in this space, you know, like, you don't pick those up. You're just like, oh... He says he's one thing I, I, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know better because I, I assume that this other person is not a psychopath, you know, mm. right? There's like, yeah. there's like a, I guess <clears throat> it's not necessarily trust, but it's more just like, um, like mistrust in what you think things are supposed to be because you're constantly in like these strange uh, anxiety inducing situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to, for me, I mean, it's, um, I think it's hard for me to ignore the kind of racial aspect uh, of this case. Not maybe not so much like, is that why he chose her as a victim, but more how the media decided to cover this case. Um, at first, kind of the lack of real coverage initially, and then when I was reading about his sentence um, and the sentencing hearing and how they spent all this time on how his, fa- you know, what his family said about him, I forgot, you know, exactly what they said. He played sports and so on, and it reminded me a lot of the Brock Turner case and how his dad talked about like. You know, he doesn't even like to eat mm. steak anymore. And it's only in these cases right. involving white males who are defendants um, where they get humanized in this way. I, I, it's, I never see it in other cases. Yeah, they, they, they were... Um, I remember there was a Chicago Tribune uh, article that was trying to shed some light on why this guy did what he did. Um, why this, uh, you know... Uh, smart young white man with no prior criminal history would do this kind of thing and I was like okay I guess that's the big question right Um, and he's a PhD student he's a PhD student what's going on with this guy how are we gonna how are we gonna understand this and uh, they you know and they they were like oh you know he had some trouble in his in his youth his there was a time when his parents had missed a few mortgage payments and they were about to uh, foreclose (laughs) on the house they, they didn't foreclose on the house, but that must have in, introduced a lot. I mean, this is literally where the article was going, that that would introduce a lot of stress into the house, and that, that might have been a trigger for I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, are you serious? This is what they're talking about? And not one mention, not one mention of his targeting of an international student. And I think that this raises this broader question for me, which is 
there is a huge amount the the higher education uh higher education in america relies a whole lot a ton on uh you know, hundreds of thousands of international students, and a lot of them are from China, p- paying full freight. Uh, more than full ev- freight. Yeah, more than Way full more. freight. It's and every college, every college wants them for their money, uh, but they don't really want. They don't really seem to care about protecting them. And this is a really egregious case. I don't know whether University of Illinois did the right thing or not. It seemed like that there was a lot of effort to solve this case and to do whatever, but. Are they? Uh, what I'm saying is, given the num, the, given the amount of money that they are relying on with Chinese international students and other from other international students from Asia, like, are they doing enough to right, uh, like acclimate it, them and to protect them? It's like in the USC case, um, they basically covered yeah. it up for years. Like these instances were being reported over and over again, and the school didn't give a shit. Right. Yeah. It's bad for business, so they don't want the word to get out, right? Exactly. You know, it's just, it's just. It, I feel like there is a duty that schools owe to their students. If you bring a student onto campus, you kind of have a duty. And if the school wants to have a lot of international students, I feel like they need to take responsibility for that. And they're not talking, you know, with the USC thing, I remember there was an article talking about it in the LA Times, and I control f for... Chinese, Asian, race, any like word related to that, nothing. They didn't bring it up at all, despite the fact that everyone was saying that this guy was specifically targeting international students from Asia. And you got to wonder why, like, why are they doing this? Is it, I think it's because there are special uh, vulnerabilities to Asian students in particular. And it's exactly, I think there's so such a huge contextual gap between their life in China or their life in Korea or their life in uh, Japan or whatever versus how life actually works on an American campus or in an American city. Um, and there's just no, I don't know, there's no special thought given to that. It's kind of like sink or swim. And if there's a literally a psycho killer um, in, in, you know, in your class, well, eh, you know, America, right? It's really... I don't know. It, it just makes me second guess whether this is the right place for, ch- for Asian international students. So that's a good segue into, um, so what's the coverage like uh, in China over this case and the USC case? There, there is a lot of attention being paid to this in China. In fact, I think the Chinese uh, consulate had sent over uh, some, some uh, uh, diplomats uh, or some that sent people from the consulate over to the trial. This is this is a big mm. this is very big news in China from what yeah, I understand. Yeah, people are pissed. It's like okay. all over Weibo. Um, what is it called? Weibo. I don't Weibo. Know. Yeah. Weibo. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if um, you know. I wonder what impact the sentence has on well, you know how the Chinese community community in China how they view the sentence. You know. Oh, not, they're pissed. Mm-hmm. They're pissed. Yeah, they. Yeah, they are like, he deserves to die. If he were tried in China, he would be sentenced to death. Like, no no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, I, it, it blows my mind that the jury was undecided about this sentencing. Like, he's clearly a psychopath. You can see it. Like, it's it, this is reported 
by the media that he is like an insane psychopath and yet they didn't give him the death penalty like what are they thinking like who deserves the death penalty that is a white man like if not somebody like this mm-hmm. i think part of the reason is that they didn't find a body in this case i know it sounds crazy because it's like okay we're rewarding somebody a killer for hiding the body well but i think also there may be some doubt like can we really execute can we feel in good conscience um, you know, execute a person if we're not sure if if this person is actually the victim's actually dead? Um, I think that may have played a part in in that. Um, but then you know also, and I want to preface this with I am against the death penalty for many reasons, um, but in this case, it's I I wanted to point out kind of the racial disparities, and I think that. Maybe one reason why this didn't happen is because he's white and she's Asian, right? Um, and I don't, I don't know the makeup of the jury, but I would guess that over there they would be mostly white. Does anyone know? No, but that'd be my guess too. Yeah. And then, you know, one of the reasons why I'm opposed to the death penalty is just because of the way that it's applied. It's applied so unfairly. So like if we look at the statistics over the years, like there, there are, a number of studies that have been done over the decade, over, you know, there are decades of research. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, if it's a, a black person, uh, uh, murder, if, if it's a, let's say it's a, a white person who is the perpetrator and the victim is a black person, then the, the likelihood of the prosecutor seeking the death penalty is very low, right? Um, and then if you flip it and it's a black person who murdered a white person, then it's very high. And then there are all these other variables in between. Um, it, and there are actually two layers of this. So it's, you know, whether or not the prosecution decides to seek the death penalty and then whether or not the jury ultimately decides to um, give the death penalty. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I'm not sure if it's the you know, if, if it was the failure to return the death penalty that, I mean, I was upset about that, but I think the broader thing, uh, that is, uh, get, getting me kind of annoyed, especially about the Asian American response to all this, that this is part of a pattern of, of targeting Asian victims. There is a, there is a pattern in this country of targeting Asian people, Asian women, especially, but also Asian men, uh, in, in you know you know this was a sex crime so sex crimes rapes murders robberies all that stuff and a lot of it is uh racially motivated in other cases it's because of the special vulnerabilities of asian people especially immigrant communities no one talks about this no one's out there talking about uh, you know, the patterns of violence against Asian people. I do hear it from local activists. I do hear it from like local and state politicians that are representing specific communities. But other than that, like, I'm just not hearing it from anybody. I'm not, you know, I, it, it's like every time we talk about racial violence in America, I think there's an assumption that that means, uh, you know, what's, what's going on at the border right now. Um, or what's or uh, you know the string of uh, police police murders and uh, and and violence against black people, black men in particular. Nobody ever talks about Asians, and yet there are a lot of bricks in that wall, from what I've seen. Um, but it's just not a phenomenon, and I just don't think it's 
Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I agree with you, too. And I, I think, um, and I've wondered why myself, like, when, when, whenever it's like the anniversary of the Vincent Chin case, Asian Americans Advancing Justice and all these other organizations would release statements and talk about it on social media. And so they're okay with talking about a case, you know, back from the 80s. But when it comes to actually talking about cases that impa- impact us now, um, it's like crickets. So, like, there's... There's Asian Americans Advancing Justice. There's for attorneys. There's the National American um, Asian Pacific American Bar Association. So I've been, you know, every time we see something like this and we know it's a pattern, I, I kind of look to them to issue a statement or say something. And it's for years been just crickets. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would add is that unlike with Vincent Chin, where. Uh, yeah, I think it was the Ebbins guy, the, the guy who killed him, um, ended up really basically serving no time in prison, despite being convicted. Uh, that in a lot of these cases, like in the case of Zhang Yingying and in the case of, you know, in, in a lot of other cases, there, there, are, there, is, there is justice served, so to speak, right? Like there was a proper investigation into it. There was an arrest. There was a conviction. The guy is going to serve life in prison or whatever. And so with Vincent Chin, I feel like the outrage might have been just the, the lack of justice. And in, in a lot of the cases against, um, in a lot of, well, you see, I don't have the stats on that, but in the ones that do make it to the news, I feel like, okay, I guess there's an ordinary, you know, there is justice served in the ordinary sense of these kinds of crimes. But what I'm, what I'm a little bit more concerned about is... Um, do we recognize that this is happening even, right? Like, I, I don't know what activism can do in the case of Zong in the sense that she's dead and he's in prison and everything sort of like is going to be what it is, you know? I mean, I don't know what fight there is left to fight, but do we understand that this is happening like as part of a pattern of violence against Asian people? Like, is that part of the awareness? And I just, I don't know if that's there. And honestly, it's not something that I think about a lot and I have to, it has, I have to see and hear the cases sort of put one after another where I'm like, holy shit, it's pretty serious, you know? You have to piece it together with the numbers from a lot of different sources, but you have to be the one to piece it together. There's no broad consciousness. Uh, I think, I mean, there's a, there's a loose um, awareness of things like yellow fever, you know? But I think uh, I think that term's been done a huge disservice by uh, the writing that's done about it. It's usually framed in in terms of um, dating grievances, right? Annoying annoying men on dates treating you a certain way because of your race, uh, and I think that does it a, a disservice because yellow fever, I, the fetishization and dehumanization of Asian women. The end point of that isn't that you had a bad date. The end point is you end up raped and decapitated in some psycho's apartment, right? So the gallons of ink that are spilled over, you know, making yellow... It's its almost like a project to make yellow fever seem um, cute, almost. Or at best, like a little... a little, uh, Just a little annoying. Um... But this is the reality of what that term should encompass. This guy absolutely... I mean, uh, I mean, I read some reports about uh, the contents of his hard drive. He was into some twisted shit. 
it was racialized. It was violent. Uh, oh, really? He, he, de- was it, he was. It was. He had like, he had like Asian porn on his on his hard drive. Yeah the the bad shit. Mm. Like it, it was dark. Mm-hmm. So there's so absolutely was, no so doubt. So that, in my that mind. would suggest a racial motive here. Uh, yeah, yeah it no, definitely I didn't know would. that about this case. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely violent fantasies about women uh, in general, and uh, in pr- I, like I don't think it was all you know uh, violent porn about Asians or or you know f- fantasy violent fantasy fulfillment just on Asians, but there definitely was enough of that to make it noteworthy in some of the reporting done about you know some of the corollary reporting done about this guy. So that's so yeah. What is that if not a racialized targeting? I, I would like to know uh, who who else he had who that other woman was that he had tried to get in his car, um, but even without that knowledge, just piecing it to like, of course, of course this is this is fetishization based on race, absolutely. Um, so if nothing else, like I think, then I think what you're pointing at is is take. Is a is a sort of consciousness building, right? That there is a persist that there is a unique threat out there aimed at uh, Asian people that's distinct from threats leveraged against other groups, and it, they they always take sexualized terms. So, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. I think at least um with my family, like they're they're aware that. Asians do get targeted, but the specific targeting of women, either I, my family doesn't talk to me about it, but they're aware or they are kind of unaware of how bad it is. Yeah. I I think in New York um, that, and this is, you know, Casey, you sent over like a bunch of links to like some fairly recent what are clearly like racially motivated attacks on Asians in uh, San Francisco. And I think in those cases, uh, most of the uh, perpetrators were black. And that's a pattern that is repeated in New York City as well. And I think that the Asian American activist community has a hard time talking about those cases too, because uh, they don't like bringing up any interracial stuff about black and Asian because it's like, it's a tough topic for, for activist communities. It's the same pattern in... It, reporting from LA, I can I can uh-huh. confirm that the same thing's going on here too. Yeah, in Boston, uh, and LA's yeah. the home of the uh, the oh, Rodney sure King rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people. Yeah. my friend told me people will um, drive around and like find an Asian person driving a car and follow them home, so they know where they live and then rob them later. Mm. Like it happens all the time yeah. in Quincy. That's yeah. I mean, I think that there. That's what I mean. Like, I think a lot of the racial motivation is this belief in a special vulnerability of Asian people. Like, we're just easier to victimize, and we also don't say shit because we don't really have. You know, people just don't say anything about it. And um, but you know, I think that um, for black on Asian crime, which in New York is just a, it's just a, like a reality of sort of just the day to day happenings in the city, right? Like. Chinese delivery guy gets beat up, gets robbed, gets murdered, um, and no one wants to talk about it. But like Frank Wu brought this up in that article for HuffPost that he did, which I thought was really good, where he was saying that 
you know, it's time that Asian Americans call in their the the chits that I, that he thinks Black Americans owe in the sense that nobody is calling this out uh, in the Black community, and that there's even you know famous instances of like Black hip hop artists glorifying violence against Asian people. I forgot the I forgot the the late the the last one. I know there was one fairly recently that was specifically sort of saying, hey, go out and this is how you rob uh, Chinese people because they're full of cash. You know, back in the day in the 90s, I remember there was uh, that that Ice Cube song about burning down a Korean, burning down Korean businesses. Uh, and this glorification of race-based, of racialized anti-Asian specific crime has not been called out by the black community. And I think Asian people, especially Asian activists, are scared to do it. And so I just, you know, it's our own, you know, our own activists, so to say, so to speak, uh, really don't say anything about it. The only people saying anything about it, I feel, are actual community organizers who generally don't have the media platforms, you know, who generally Mm -hmm. aren't, uh, you know, talking about it on American social media. But maybe it's confined to WeChat or something like that, that never breaks out into larger consciousness. I, I can speak to L.A. Um, I see a distinct class gap between between Asian activists, the activist class, the well-heeled, well-platformed class, uh, and the actual targets of this violence. And that that complicates the matter a lot. Oh, yeah, totally. Well. Yeah. So, I mean. The, these activists that earn their money through foundation grants or through Twitter advocacy or whatever, um, they actually have no vested interest in these communities. They have far more to gain from being quiet. Uh, if the being quiet about crimes um, that af- affect their own, uh, if it involves other groups, like for instance, black on Asian crime. Um, there's no social capital in calling out crimes against Asians. And I think there is a very big sense, in, a, a pretty strong sense in uh, upper crust Asian America that you kind of dissociate from the, the working class as soon as possible. You disavow, you kind of politely, you, you know, physically, you know, the way it worked in, in LA's uh, Koreatown, uh, that's the hub. Everyone goes there when they first get here. But the goal is always to get out. And once you leave, you don't actually come back. Um, and I think that speaks to a broader sense of distance, wishing of distancing. Because these, these activists come from the class that moved out, that was able to uh, get get homes in the cushy suburbs, send their kids to good schools, and continue on onwards and upwards. The brunt of this is being suffered in really dense urban areas where, um, like, I'm sure parts of L.A., um, San Francisco, New York, and Boston. Um, And, Casey, you had had sort of brought up this screenshot that you shared with us on Facebook about... Um, you kind of talking with some of your your friends in in San Francisco about what could be done about all this because there has been a series of really brutal, like fractured skull coma brutal type shit, like awful awful stuff uh, um, against elderly Asian people, uh, the, the most reprehensible kind of crime, and I I understand the anger and just total. 
uh, just rage that that would cause in someone of that community. I mean, just me seeing it from across the coast, I'm enraged. And you were asking, well, what can be done about this? And he said, bring back the tongs, you know, like bring them back. Like we need to take the streets back. And you, I don't know if you were asking me whether what my response to that was or, or, or if that might be useful, but I do think that, you know, maybe, maybe the word tong has a specific connotation in San Francisco Chinatown, but I do think that there needs to be more street level awareness of this stuff because I just feel like, is it the special, is it this lack, our own ability to socialize the idea that we're being victimized by particular um, non-Asian people in, a, in particular patterns? Is it our unwillingness or our discomfort in socializing that idea and communicating that idea um, that just makes it more dangerous for us on the streets? You know, and do we instead, do we need to sort of like have street level awareness of this? Uh, I don't know if tongs are the answer, but I do think that, you know, I, you know, there's, there's cases where Chinese uh, people are victimized in Chinatown in New York City. And I'm like, see, you're not even safe on your own streets. Uh, nobody fears Chinatown. Nobody fears going into Chinatown and, and starting shit with uh, Chinese people in Chinatown because those streets are not policed. And people don't walk around, it seems, with that general sense of, um, I don't know, general sense of danger, I suppose. I don't know. But uh, anyway, that's, that's how I feel. Like, I, I feel like maybe your friend was getting at that. Like, we need to make these streets more safe for us on our terms. Right. And I, I guess I do agree with that to some extent. Right. That's, that's exactly what they were getting at. So, you know, this topic is, is kind of hard for me to talk about. I'm kind of in an awkward position because kind, kind of like the social activists that, um, just described, I, I really have like professionally, it's not in my interest to talk about this because I actually, I'm a criminal defense attorney and I do a lot of juvenile defense cases and I work, um, primarily with the black and brown community and I am very passionate about my work. Um, and so it, you know, this kind of, whenever this issue is brought up, I feel like I, or whenever these cases are, you know, come up, I feel like I'm maybe not the best person to be um, drawing attention to them because it could be a conflict of interest for me, right? But I I started doing that because nobody else is. And it's, I think it's newsworthy and it's something that we need to talk about and address. Otherwise, it's going to, um, it's going to continue. So there's that. And then it, I, there is a pattern that's going on and it's not just in San Francisco Chinatown, but it's across the nation. And, uh, you know, like you said, these cases, it's, they're not just like simple, like, you know, like phone snatch cases where someone will run up and like grab someone's phone and then run away. They're very brutal crimes. And we have like, you know, grandmothers who are 88 years old who are still in the hospital recovering from uh, an assault in January of this year. And this, just this past Monday, um, this man in San Francisco, Chinatown, he was picked up and then dropped headfirst into the ground um, before they, they took his watch. And then when his friend came running over, they punched him in the eye. So these are just very brutal, brutal, brutal crimes. And um, it feels like, um, you know, that the Asians are really being dehumanized. Um, because you don't, that level of brutality isn't really necessary to accomplish a robbery, right? 
and yeah you know what it reminded me of mm-hmm. um like these alleged like attempted rapes of 99 year old women just like arbitrary brutal violence this is the shit that was happening in the rape of nanking right and that was like, in san francisco of- chinatown that case that you're referencing referencing yeah mm-hmm. yeah like that's the level yeah. of like psychotic brutality. Depravity. Yeah. Right. It's fucking. Depravity. If it was a war, this would be. These would be war crimes. But here's the here's the problem is, um, you know, when Tina you talked earlier about you know, or you said earlier that these are racially motivated crimes, and I think the problem is that, you know, in Vincent Chin's case, we can say that it was racially motivated because you said this is you know this is for you jobs or something like that. But in these cases, it's a little blurred because how do we know, like, how can we say that these are racially motivated versus just crimes of opportunity and that Asians are just easier targets, right? I think that's part of the issue. But yes, I agree. But I think that, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to say that these aren't always going to be, you know, you're going to be able to prove a racial motivation for purposes of like prosecution. Uh, But uh, I do think that in addition to whatever sick thing that they, you know, like whether it's racism or Asian being an Asian fetishist or whatever, on top of that, I think that it's the special vulnerability of Asian. So when you say opportunity, that's kind of what I'm latching onto here as a form of it is a form of racial right. motivation where, you know, you're hearing stuff like, oh, yeah, go after Chinese delivery boys because they don't know, you know, they don't carry weapons and they're full of cash. I mean, that to me is racial motivation, even if it may not rise to the level of like a federal hate crime or whatever. Uh, that that to me is 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 racially motivated. And, um, you know, what, what really pisses me off uh, is, I mean, look, I, I, I can only expect so much out of the criminal justice system. I can only expect so much out of non-Asian people when it comes to this stuff. But what really pisses me off is like when I'm talking to other Asian Americans that are similar to myself, second or, you know, second gen or more, well assimilated, upper middle class or whatever. And, you know, they they want to put a framework around this shit. They want to be like, okay, but let's think about how we can, um, you know, work together. How, How do we find coalition? How do we build, you know, whatever. And then it comes with this immediate sense that first generation immigrants, you know, from China or wherever in Asia, simply don't have enough context to know what the fuck they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I get this all the time uh, from, from quote, woke Asians. And they're constantly feeling like first generation immigrant communities, usually poor, we're talking about, you know, Chinatowns and stuff like that, um, just are too like clueless to really know to advocate for themselves to really know what's really going on and then it's a fear that you know they're going to start turning into you know white reactionary type politics so if anything that they say starts to sound a little bit too Breitbarty or whatever they start freaking out because they're like oh no this is just another case of Asians wanting to be white I mean I've heard this shit you know you've seen me hear it right like what is this stuff And I think that Jess, it does kind of go to a little bit of this, this that class divide where people don't get that, um, you know, when it comes to crime, it's not an abstract thing. This is like hammer to your fucking head. This is like, these are people having their lives completely upended and ruined and destroyed and, and suffering. Uh, it's not part of like some, you know, general race framework that we need to 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And, Does that make and, sense? I, like, and you know what? They, they couldn't be more wrong about the first generation Chinese or Asian Americans because doing, doing what I do, totally I actually am privy to, um, you know, I do a lot of victim impact uh, hearings. So that's when victims can actually come in and they, they can either read the statement themselves or they can write something and have the district attorney write or, or read out loud in court, um, kind of how the crime impacted them. So I've had cases with white victims and Asian victims and I've had white victims come in and they want blood. <laughs> like they're, they, they're talking about how, yeah. you know, how, how this has totally changed their lives and they, they want this much in restitution and they want to see jail time and a real accountability. And I, I've had a number of, um, cases involving Chinese victims too. And in those cases, and this is actually surprising to me, and I would say it's the large majority, like 90% or more. Um, they come in and the sentiment is more, and this, this is in juvenile cases, the sentiment is we don't want this, this person to go to jail. We want them to focus on school and we want the system to help this, um, this youth. So it's, they have it completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you're saying that even those first gen can understand that they, that, I mean, that, that they have a pretty sophisticated understanding of criminal justice and how the limits of it and like, how do I put this? Like they're, they're, they're not just like these, these, um, yeah, jabbering no, idiots not at all. that, yeah. you know, are just like, you know, and I think that is the racism that I or see. Or bloodthirsty in a lot of savages. I I hate right. seeing I hate seeing this uh the snobby attitude that um the that the newly immigrated have a corrupt or very atavistic sense of justice that you know we just can't you know we're civilized here we don't we don't do things quite that way. And this uh, is I think this came out in embedded. the in the pro. Yeah, you know, like, oh, we like need to really teach them embedded. about how justice is done, you know, in this liberal Western society, you know, not like back home, you know, um, where just shit just happens. I saw mm -hmm. a lot of this in the criticism over the advocacy for the Peter Liang case as yeah. well. It's an assumption about the critical reasoning capacity of new immigrants. And I think that exposes a lot of very ugly internalized racism, mm -hmm. honestly. Yes. Yes. It's it's pretty breathtaking to see that. Yes. And then but I but I've seen it too. My mom uh my mom was a social worker for a very long time and taught uh taught in the field. So she she has seen a lot of this too. Um so I can so I, I I'm not th there directly I'm just reporting my mom's experience, but I totally mm -hmm. see where you're coming from on that cast. You know what in a weird twist though, it's like it's even it, there's even another layer of racism there uh, where it's like if something happened in Chinatown, they start talking about first gen immigrants. And I'm like, you know, a lot of people in like Manhattan, Chinatown, San Francisco, Chinatown have actually they're the ones that have been here the longest. So mm -hmm. it's this assumption that it's this assumption that if you're in an enclave or a Chinatown and those are like Chinatown, San Francisco, Chinatown, Manhattan are, are generally not the wealthiest places. Right. There's a lot of poverty in these neighborhoods. That that sort of just sort of like melds into their conception of first gen immigrants and this whole thing. It's kind of like this whole kind of like vague category of just like jabbering idiot Asian mm -hmm. people, right? They're just mm -hmm. they're just these uh, nonsense uh, 
people who flip through trash and, uh, you know, all the other fucking, like, ideas, I think, get melded into this one thing where they start talking about first-generation immigrants just because we're talking about Manhattan Chinatown. And I'm like, I know people in Chinatown that have been there for four generations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they've been here longer than us, the, the second gens, or, or not us, uh, sorry. Uh, uh, the Casey, post-1965. Yeah, the 1965, yeah, us 1965 uh, post-immigrants here. Um, I think there's an assumption that, uh, you know, it's like, you know, if you, over time, like, the whole purpose is to get out of there, right? Is to get the fuck out of Mm -hmm. Chinatown. Uh, It's only recent immigrants that are only, you know, Chinatown's good for human trafficking and, you know, uh, old people on government subsidy. It's just ridiculous. And it just shows how out of touch they are with, you know, the the Asian community, the actual Asian, the Chinatown community, at least. So there was a press conference today and um, right about the incident last week. And right at the start of the press conference, the I don't know what his title, like the direct the director of the Chinese Consolidated uh, Benevolent benevolent association stood up and then he said, we're going to have this press conference, but, um, uh, you know, there are three restrictions. One, we're not, it's not going to dissolve into racism. So no racist remarks. And then number two, no, um, no politics, because there were a number of politicians there and people wanting to run, you know, mayoral uh, candidates and uh, DA candidates were also there trying to, um, you know, get their name out there. So no politics. And they actually really enforced these things. They took mics away from people. And then the third one was just no incitement, like no inciting, uh, insightful comments. Is it insight? Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, they, I mean, again, again, for, for uh, presumably for Chinese people that showed up, is that, is that what you're referring right, to? But it, it, these right. Rules, so my I point mean, is that, I mean, yeah. it's, they, it was very sophisticated. It was a very structured meeting, and throughout the entire meeting, they had someone in, enforcing these rules. But I, I you know, I, I would want to say though, uh, but by having these rules, it made it very hard to talk about the issue, right? Because they enfor- he enforced it maybe a little too much. So anytime there was any reference to race, um, the mic was taken away. <laughs> from the person. And so I think it's very hard mm-hmm. to talk about these cases without talking about the underlying issue of race, because there, it, even if we don't like it, it's it, in these cases, they're not always black on Asian crimes. So even if we take away, like, you know, the perpetrator's race, um, there's this, there's still this trend of Asian people being victimized, Chinese people being victimized. And I think, that's something that needs to be talked about, but that's some, that's the issue that's constantly being swept under the rug. Um, uh, so if we don't talk about it, you know, how can we address it? And, sh- you know, I don't want to uh, keep on going. Well, one thing that uh, you mentioned earlier, Tina, is, you know, whenever we do talk about the issue of race, it, then we talk about coalition b- building and community building. And, you, you know, I want to... My thoughts on that are, you know, if we don't do that, uh, you know, what are the alternatives? Because in, in the, like, when we're talking about the Facebook uh, screenshot that I posted, the, the typical comment, the typical response is, you know, let's bring back the tongs, right? It's kind of like this macho talk, like back in the day when there was watching, this wouldn't happen. Or, you know, let's, um, like they, they think about the days of the LA riots when, um, 
the Korean the Korean men were on top of California market with guns, right? They're like, let's 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 do something like that. But the reality of of it is that the gangs aren't going to come back. You know, every single time this comes up, they say the same things and nothing happens. And is that really a solution to this problem, right? Like, it, are we actually targeting the root of the problem when we talk about? resolving the issue in this way. I want to kick this back to Casey, because uh, I'm curious her thoughts. I, you know, I heard that the the violence against Asian shop owners in, uh, I believe Chinese, uh, was it Chinese? I think Chinese in Sacramento uh, was so bad that they started uh, creating sort of like their own Asian citizens, like watch groups where they would like help uh, and they were armed. They were armed and they would help each other get home at night, you know, because they were closing out registers and taking home cash and stuff. And they were like, you know, fuck it. The police don't say, you know, the police aren't looking after us. We're going to take this into our own hands. So they, they organized their own system of mutual protection that involved being armed. And that was pretty controversial. And I really supported that idea because I'm like, you need to help yourself. And... You know, I don't know if tongs on the street, what that necessarily means in the minds of the guys that you're talking to. Um, but I guess when it comes to old, you know, elderly people getting their heads cracked and open and stuff like that, like, I really just don't give a shit about coalitions at that point. I want people protected. And what do you think about that kind of street level organization that was going on in California where they were like, you know, let's put together armed uh you know, armed escorts to get our people, you know, to get our family and friends home safe. You know, um, I couldn't find fault in that. Mm-hmm. To be honest. I think in the long term, you know, maybe that may kind of be a band-aid to the solution. But I think in the long term, I mean, we're, we're especially, in, I mean, in big cities like San Francisco or New York, we're, we're going to be diverse. And I think it's important for the different ethnic communities to get along. Um, you know, there's there's a story that I want to share. I every day I wear this eye watch, and I have um, there's this Gucci band that I purchased <laughs> from Alibaba. It's <laughs> it's like a two or three dollar uh, knockoff Gucci, and I always wear it because I work with kids, um, and it, it's kind of a conversation starter, right? So kids will wear it, and then or I'll, I would wear it, and then kids will make remarks like, "Yeah, you know, Asian people have money, or Chinese people have money," and then that's when I can start talking about about stereotypes and how it's not true and how, um, you know, my, I came up from a family of immigrants and we were very poor, but I think there needs to be this sort of education, um, on both ends. And we, we have to find out like first, why are Asians being targeted and how, you know, what are the, you know, what are the perceptions of Asians and how can we combat, combat those perceptions? And then at the same time, you know, why, why are Asians being, um, you know, dehumanized? Same thing. Like, how can we combat that? How, what type of education can we provide? What kind of restorative justice can we provide? Um, down in Los Angeles, when people commit crimes, uh, like hate crimes, they have a, they're actually sentenced to um, sometimes to doing community service at the Museum of Tolerance, so where they can learn about different cultures, and then they have to write an essay or something at the end. And I think it would be useful in the long term for the different communities to learn about each other. I, I kind of look at this um, as a parallel kind of to the LA riots, like back in the day, um, 
you know, right after the riots, the, there was a lot of coalition building between the black community and the Korean community. And this is right when I moved down there during law school. And, um, you know, the, the Korean community is saying, you know, we're constantly being victimized and, um, we're being robbed. And I heard so many stories about, um, about, you know, kids, kids in liquor stores talking about how they're, they're behind the bulletproof glass and they're watching their parents being beaten. And then we heard stories from the black community about how they didn't have grocery stores in their neighborhoods and they're forced to go into these liquor stores. And when they did, they were treated as like less than human beings and they were being followed around. And like when, um, they were given change, they weren't the, the store owners wouldn't touch them. They would just throw the change at them or just put it on the counter, put the change on the counter. So the, these, all these kind of things were coming out and, um, being addressed. And like, so that was in 2000 and like 2003, 2004. And then fast forward to when I actually left K Town, um, after there was a, a good number of years of coalition building, I, I saw a huge change in that. And I don't know if you see that now, Jess. I actually don't. Uh, I might be embedded in a different area. Maybe I'm just not seeing it. I'm not in the right place to see it. Um, but it's it's bad. The rhetoric on... I hear the worst things from Koreans, and I, I, t- I keep my eye on the crime stats, and they've... They keep going up. Look, I'll, I'll, I'm going to throw my voice in here as the... Um, uh, the, the, the macho man. is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look, it's weird for Asians because I think that you, we do have to have a little bit of faith to understand that, like, you know, people do respect you more when you stand up for yourself. I remember I had this conversation with, um, a black woman on Twitter, uh, who I follow, I actually really like her account, but she had tweeted something about how Asian, it, it, it she found it disgusting with, you know, all caps about how Asian Americans were out, um, demonstrating against homeless shelters being built in their communities big topic i know but i retweeted it and i said look i'm i gotta say i gotta i gotta say something here like i am for asian american self-interest okay i think that asian american communities have a right to self-protection and maybe that's not always going to show up in a great way because you're playing zero-sum nimby politics that's just dirty it's just dirty politics to say like i don't want that in my backyard or whatever i'm not i'm not saying it's our proudest moment but I am going, I'm not going to go specifically looking around to backbite Asian communities that are protecting themselves from, for example, being frozen out of um, municipal politics, municipal procedures, okay? I never hear them say, oh, white people were doing this or whatever, because they just don't have, they're not faced with the problem. And so she actually retweeted what I said. And you know what she retweeted? She said, you know, I just want to be clear that I actually agree with this guy and that I think that ADOS, and she was meaning, you know, American descendants of, black, of slaves, uh, should take a note from this to say, God, look at every group out there. Every group acts in self-interest, and they say, fuck the coalition if the coalition isn't giving them what they need in terms of protection. And she was saying from her perspective that she wishes ADOS activists were more like that. Instead of paying so much attention to allyship and coalition building, that they actually not be afraid to take... Um, the position of self-interest. And I think for me personally, I totally understand when when other groups pursue their self-interest because it makes sense to me and I don't get angry about them doing that. 
I don't think that they're being like selfish and I don't think that they're being hypocritical. I think they're doing what I hope that we would do. I think one of the difficulties, though, is I don't see, honestly, I don't see Asian Americans in a position where it, I don't see a phenomenon of Asian American youths going out around victimizing other people where I would be able to relate to the situation of how would I feel if other people were saying, my God, Asian people keep attacking us. What would I feel like? Would I feel that that was an anti-Asian statement if it was actually happening? I don't think I would. The thing is, it just doesn't happen. So I just don't know. But I would gather if there were Asian American gangs or Asian American youth going around perpetrating violence on other people, and it became a thing where they were like, what is this Asian, Asian on black or Asian on white or Asian on Latino crime wave that's going on? I wouldn't take it as racist. I mean, I'd be like, what the fuck is that going on? And I think we need that confidence to be like, you, you, you ha- like there is no shame in, in protecting yourself in your communities. And you just got to just shut the, that, that, that voice up that keeps second guessing um, whether Asian people know what's good for them. That's my take. I actually have a question for her Casey in this case. Um, so we've been kind of talking. Uh, I have a question um, for Casey. So as someone from the inside, uh, who's who actually is on the ground working on this, can you give us an example of successful um, coalition building? Like, what would that look like? Um, what would be something that uh, just some a per a random person who happens to be Asian or black that that they could do or say or or you know think about a little more critically? Well, just a right, just a you know a very um, a small example. My my just you know what I said earlier about wearing this I watch um, or Apple Watch with the fake Gucci band. The reason why I do that is because there's a stereotype that, um, you know, Asian Americans are, are rich and so on. Um, and the reason why these things are even sought after is because, I mean, who are the role models for kids and for, for youth and black youth? They're these rappers who are constant, you know, they're constantly showing off, um, you know, brand name wear. And if we can get to the, black community and talk about this and kind of have people in these positions um, kind of change their rhetoric, like the YG rapper, right, who talked about, and this is, I mean, this is, this is like wishful thinking, right? Um, You know, the YG rapper coming out and saying this is, and acknowledging what I, what I said is messed up um, and retracting you know, what they said about Chinese Americans and going to their homes and burglarizing them. But, you know, having someone in a position of authority get through to these kids and say, and letting them know that this is not okay, that this is racist. um, That's kind of what I had in mind in terms of coalition building. So it's, 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 you're basically talking about a slow uh, project to rehumanize each other in each other's eyes. Right. So what I had in mind when I when I was talking about restorative justice is you know when and of, of course when we're talking about restorative justice it's like case like let's say vandalism in Chinatown or something like that um, creating a program in our Chinese historical museum and that talks that teaches about the history of Chinese Americans and our contributions and having these having the kids who um, are going through the system who have been found to you know commit these crimes. Uh, complete these programs, something something like that, so they can actually 
take something away and bring something back to their communities. So we're talking about, um, you know, slow moves, you know, things that people, if, if the opportunity comes up to not shy away from little teachable moments. Right. Um, going back to, you know, the stories of brutality, because those are, those are gruesome stories. Those, that's inhuman levels of violence. Uh, and we only we only hear about it when it reaches the news when it happens. So, as someone who is a, a professional in that space, who who has the opportunity to maybe see some of these cases play out in the legal system, um, are they treated fairly? Do you think? Um, I think so. I, I think that the prosecutors. I mean, it, when you say are they treated fairly, like are they are prosecutors paying attention to them? Are they filing on the cases? That's a, I'm assuming that's what you mean. And then mm-hmm. you know, are, are they doing the yeah. investigation? Um, and then are these are, are the perpetrators ultimately held accountable? I would say yes. Right? If that's what you mean by fairly. Um, yeah, they, they they do have to, I mean, these cases do get filed on. Okay. I mean, with the big caveat that the entire system is broken, right? I don't, I don't relish hearing that someone got thrown into jail um, for a huge, you know, a lengthy period of time for, for, um, you know what I mean? Like, it's a broken system, but insofar as we are operating in it, uh, I just wanted to know if the same standards, you felt like uh, the same standards were being applied to these crimes as they would in, say, with a different racial, um, co- you know, a different racial mix of victim and perpetrator. Yeah, I would say yes. Um, I, if the, I would say yes. It's not. I haven't seen any real substantial differences. So if if we're talking about like a uh, an Asian victim versus a, a white victim. Um, I don't, I haven't noticed any substantial differences between like, uh, you know, how the cases are treated. I mean, that to me, I mean, that speaks to, uh, the point teen made earlier that, that this is, um, this is different from the world of Vincent Chin. It makes his case that much more tragic to, to think that, uh, it would have been handled, it might've been handled so much differently now. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I, I see a bit of hope in this yeah i i think if justice i think i think if justice is served in every case as it would be if the victim were white i still don't care because like what i really it's it you know they could kill this christiansen guy tomorrow with a bullet to the yeah. head and it wouldn't solve the fucking problem right it's it's like we're it's all dealing with it after the person has had been killed or been raped or whatever and so i, I i'm not particularly concerned with what happens in the judicial, you know, in the, in, in the criminal justice phase of the crime, it's like, why are we not even allowed to, like, why, why are Asian people right. in these communities sort of, like, suppressed in talking about it? Like you said at that, at that community meeting. Why the fuck are they being suppressed when it comes to talking about race? Like, okay, the, the, the prosecutor in this case is going to do a good job. They're going to do a responsible job, but you can't talk about race because you're going to fuck up the coalition or whatever, or we don't trust you because you're jibber-jabbering, uh, you know, immigrant-type people or whatever. Yeah. It's like, no, fuck that. I feel like probably in China and, um, like, n- not, like, people... N- like Asians not in America probably have more of uh, 
an understanding of like these racial issues because they're talking about it more. I don't know. You know? I like, don't know about that. Um, on WeChat, I don't know. And they, and they don't hear... play the strange. No, but they don't play the strange racial politics of America, which yeah. is a learned system of bizarreness. It doesn't make any sense to people who come here. Del- I don't understand the racial politics here. Why is it that if you're like, you know, people of a certain race can talk about they're, they're being victimized for their race, but Asians can't. Okay, well, then we've got to do a talk about coalitional uh, dynamics and the racial parfait of America or whatever. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? These people are targeting us because we're Chinese. They said it. You know, like, what more do, you know, it, it, I think it's that they do understand it. I think it's the, it's the coalitional politics that makes everything so damn complicated, uh, which is why we see self-censoring and self-suppression about it. And you're right. It is class-based and I find it disgusting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, the, I think the new, the Vincent Chin's case was newsworthy because they weren't being tried and, you know, they weren't get, being held accountable for what happened. But then these cases are newsworthy because it's, they're, they're, they're part of a greater trend. And, you know, I agree with what Teen says. Like, if, if we're, we may disagree on what the solution may be, but if we're not even able to talk about it, if we are not even able to bring it up as an issue, then we're never going to get into the solution part of the discussion. Oh, and I don't disagree with your solution. I'm just saying I, I don't see them as necessarily mutually uh, exclusive. And I think that there is um, there is a need mm-hmm. for self-protection um, and for just community awareness and sometimes taking things into your own hands, like arming yourself in, in certain cases. I, I actually think that it would be stupid not to. Uh, so, but that's... That's that's my that's my opinion. I'm not in that position. So. I want to see fewer international students come to America. Cool. I want to see that to be the direct downstream effect of this reporting. Hit him where it Me hurts. Too. Honestly, I do too. Don't reward not to yeah. go other go to other countries where they don't do this. Though this does happen in other countries. It happens in Canada. It happens in the UK. It sure as fucking well happens in Australia. So why don't you avoid the Anglosphere? Happens in uh, France altogether. too. <laughs> okay, shit. You know, uh, <laughs> shit. Uh, God damn it! All right. Um, anyway, oh, um, this is a bummer. At least Asian Americans here should be throwing their mm-hmm. support behind international students who, who come here. Yeah, we should be supporting these elderly yeah. who are being targeted. Like, come on, throwing an eighty-eight-year-old man. Like, leaving aside what we what we do about international students, we. These elderly are our own right here. We should at least be able to find solidarity in supporting their causes. That's right. Like when I don't hear, you know, Asian Law Caucus or, you know, these these organizations, when I don't hear them talking about it, I sometimes wonder to myself, like, am I going crazy? Like, am I the only one who sees a trend? And why isn't anybody else saying or doing something about it? Because it's a low-class problem. It's a low-class problem that happens in Chinatown. No one cares about Chinatown. I see it all the time. I see fucking, like, all these people on, like, Asian social media who are, like, modding something. And they're like, uh, oh, yeah, I give a shit about Asian-American stuff. And then you see them, what they're talking about. And they're like, oh, Chinatown's so disgusting. Oh, uh, they're ruining the local uh, architecture by putting all those metal gates on their doors. So tacky. Oh, it smells like fish. Like shut the fuck up. This is what I'm talking about. It's it's it is an ingrained class-based kind of discrimination between Asian Americans and that is why their problems don't matter because we're yeah. the gatekeepers. 
Yeah. Okay. Like, look at why. the saturation yeah. that the Harvard case got in within Asian media, Asian American social media spaces, compared to violence against yeah. poor, yeah. Uh, elderly mm-hmm. Asians in these communities. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what? If you don't want to talk about it, don't talk about it. But don't get in the fucking way and start telling, you know, taking mics away from people and stuff. And I mean, come on. On the topic of gangs, I mean, there, I, this has happened before. Um, right with the uh, with Cambodian and Vietnamese gang gangs in Southern California, I'm not sure about the history of Asian gangs in San Francisco. I watched all of Warrior, but I'm not actually going to start <laughs> quoting that as history. Um, so it's like, like, but it's like as a, as just as a citizen and a random nobody, right? Like I, I can say I'm yeah I'm opposed to gang violence, blah blah blah. But honestly, if some brave dude just picked up some nunchucks and caved in a guy's head who was trying to rape a 90-year-old woman in her home. I'm not exactly going to I'm not going to get all moralistic about about this. That's just like I'll just leave that as my final thought, you know. You heard it You heard it here first. Plan A is for gang violence. I am very pro I, I am pro roof Korean. You can put me on the record for saying that. I'm glad they were on that roof protecting their Yeah. Family. Good for them. Yes, I'm not gonna. Why should we back down yeah. from that? <laughs> okay, should we should we end it here yeah. <laughs> before we get into <laughs> actual <laughs> trouble? <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> All right, that was our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our Patreon. You'll get bonus episodes, access to our Plan A Discord. And you'll contribute to a writer's fund to support new and exciting Asian American writers. Uh, and if not, you know, like subscribe and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, and all of that.